Hey everybody, welcome to class number 10 of the Watership Down class, that which was originally conceived to be the end of the Watership Down class, but we've added one more week, so we don't quite have to leave Watership Down behind yet. Um, uh, I'm looking forward, however, to finishing the end of book four today. I have uh, some reasonable hope and expectation of actually executing that plan. Uh, first, though, some uh, some announcements and updates. Um, firstly, the uh, spring semester classes at Mythgard have started up uh, this week, just yesterday, actually. Uh, we had the first, uh, uh, I almost said episode, the first class session of the uh, Beowulf through Tolkien class by Tom Shippey and uh, Science Fiction 2 uh, with Amy Sturgis. Um, both classes off to a really great start. Uh, so there's still time. Uh, the classes are still open for enrollment uh, for the next two weeks. Uh, we've got a, a great enrollment this semester. Over a hundred uh, over a hundred students enrolled uh, in those two classes this semester. So um, I uh, I strongly recommend uh, that you check them out. The, these uh, classes this semester are a really great opportunity. Um, we also, of course, had our third annual Mythmoot uh, event this past weekend. Um, and uh, yes, yes, Neil, I did manage to get all of that stuff into my car. Uh, <laughs> I was one of the only of the organizers who drove to the event, and so we had a bunch of leftover stuff, especially food, uh, uh, from our hospitality suite, which all got loaded up uh, into a very ungainly luggage cart uh, for me to take out and squeeze into my small car. Um, and yes, Sarah, I did get Sting home all right, so I got the, the booze and the weaponry back home across state lines without incident. I'm glad. Um, so anyway, all's well that ends well. Uh, and uh, what happens at Mythmood stays at Mythmood. But anyway, no, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was a wonderful time. Um, always a great time uh, to see uh, so many of you. Um, uh, I find Mythmood just this amazing thing where you know, getting a chance to see, you know, to get gather with a, a big crowd like that. We had almost 120 people total uh, at Mythmoot this year, and uh, just, you know, absolutely everybody in the room is somebody that I have... Uh, uh, that I have known well and interacted with over the you know the the span of the last few years uh, in classes like this one, and it's just so wonderful to connect with people. Uh, some people again uh, for um, um, you know the, the the second or third time, uh, and uh, anyway, it's uh, it, it was uh, it, it was a wonderful time. Um, I also wanted to sh to explain, because I know not everybody was able to be there, and I've just made some sort of cryptic references uh, on uh, Twitter since, uh, well, while I was there and since I got back, to explain my the big announcement that I made on Saturday. Um, that is what my next uh, podcast adventure after Riddles in the Dark is going to be. Um, and... Um, so let me just sort of explain a little bit of that now, so that people who uh, are following the Mythgard Academy class as well can also uh, understand, and m more importantly, uh, in my mind here, not misunderstand <laughs> what it is in exactly uh, that we're planning um, for the coming year. And as I explained in my tweets, as I uh, uh, explained at Mythmoot, um, I'm, we, we're going to be kicking off in this spring... Um, starting in the spring, we're going to be planning a full-length film adaptation of The Silmarillion. Um, and let me do what I did during my talk there, which is to sort of offer some, some gloss of, uh, of, of several of those words. Um, 
The first is planning. This is the most important thing. We have no plans to put on any kind of production. Uh, you know, uh, there's, there's, there's. No, this is make believe, which means it's going to be much more fun. We shall plan out and envision an adaptation of the Silmarillion, completely untrammeled by the normal restrictions. We don't budgets. We don't care about budgets. Availability of you know of of, of talent. We have an infinite resource. Um, uh, we don't have to worry about uh, 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 you know any kind of pressure from uh, studio executives. We don't have to worry about any kind of uh, pressure from uh, you know uh, uh, marketing groups or or, uh, or, or focus groups. Um, we can entirely <laughs> please ourselves. So uh, that's ex that's indeed what we are going to be doing. Um, uh, Dave and Dave was joking about this at Mythmood, you know, saying that uh, the 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 need to actually stop talking about what you know our, our, what we believe would be a really awesome Hobbit adaptation, uh, and continue and repeatedly ground ourselves in what we thought likely actually to happen uh, in the film became more and more wearing, and we've decided just to cut ourselves loose uh, from, from reality in that way. Um, but of course, the main thing was, it was, um, I found, really digging into The Hobbit and the surrounding materials, um, you know, that is, the, the, the Appendix A material, the, the uh, Quest of Erebor stuff, all of the, you know, all of these other later writings of Tolkien which bear upon The Hobbit story retroactively from many years later, um, you know, digging into that and really thinking through the challenges for adaptation over the course of the Riddles in the Dark series uh, has really, I mean, I had so much fun in doing that, um, and I found that such a fruitful way to really think carefully. There are a whole bunch of things about the Hobbit story that I never really thought about or appreciated until going through in that particular way. So I figured... What would be what could be more fun than that? Well, let's do that with the Silmarillion. Everyone, you know, is always asking the question: Hey, are they ever going to do a, a Silmarillion film? Uh, to which my answer is no. So let's. So all the better, more reason to talk about it. So so we're going to talk about it. Um, the other thing that I would emphasize is the we. Uh, we hope that this is going to be uh, a very sort of collective thing. There. Are, uh, oh, and uh, Michael, you're absolutely right, Michael. Truskowski asks, asks me, would a TV format be better than a movie format? Absolutely, that's what we're planning. Not a feature film, because that's absurd. Um, a, uh, uh, we're thinking of a TV series, one-hour episodes, 12 or 13 episodes per year. Um, and uh, that, that's definitely... Um, that's, it's, it's, that's exactly what we're thinking. Um, uh, so yeah, n no question. No question. Absolutely no desire to squeeze this into any number of feature-length films. Um, in fact, again, that was one of the things that I uh, one of the things that I came away from Riddles in the Dark with is uh, not just for the Silmarillion, for which that that's almost an obvious decision, but but in general, I I um, I, I, I find the idea of anybody trying to do a novel, any a novel of any length, um, in a film. Um, it's they're just not equivalent. I mean, with the the scope of the project that you get in a two to three hour film is about the equivalent in creative scope to like a short story, basically. So you can adapt a short story into a good film. It's really hard to do a novel really well in two hours. It's just usually too much to it. Um, uh, 
yeah. Um, Michael asks the whole thing, or for a give, or, or for a particular story. Oh, oh, oh no, Michael, the whole thing. I insist on the whole thing. We're going to start with the Ina Lindale, and we're going to, well, we're going to go until we decide to stop. Who knows when that's going to be? Uh, the fall of Baradur, possibly. Who knows? Um, but anyway, yeah, it's it's that's uh, uh, yep yeah, yep yeah, that's exactly the plan. Whole thing, absolutely. Um, uh, so, um, and yes, Gerald, we're going we're gonna to be formatting it into seasons and episodes, absolutely. So it's one of the things that we're going to be discussing as we go along, thinking about the, uh, um, the, 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 the plot arcs for the individual seasons as well as the individual episodes. My first thought, you know, is I'm thinking season one, probably Ina Lindale through the chaining of Melkor. Is kind of is, is what I'm toying with right now. We'll have to see. You know, we we'll have to actually have to kind of plan that out episode by episode and see what happens there. Um, yes, Karita, we can indeed keep this going for a long time. Dave Kale and I were talking about it on the phone a couple months ago, and uh, I've been sitting on this for a long time, and it's almost killed me. Um, but anyway, I, I, so we were talking about this, and we we're we we're kind of mocking it out in our heads. You know, how many seasons it would be, and we figure, by the way, it's going to take us at least a calendar year. Uh, to discuss our way through a full season of this, you know, on average, and uh, and we're like, and how many seasons is going to be? And we're like, well, it, at least ten. I mean, minimum ten seasons. It's got to be right. So, so basically, uh, you know, we figure we're going to be bequeathing this project to our heirs someday. Uh, <laughs> but, but that's all. That's all good fun. Um, so, uh, and, uh, you know, people are asking, are we going to just stick with the published Silmarillion? No, not necessarily. In fact, I, I actively have already several elements from the Book of Lost Tales that I would like to, to, to put into it. I think we can do some, uh, some mixing and matching, um, you know, to try to, uh, you know, I mean, that's, in the end, you think of the decisions that Christopher Tolkien had to make when putting together the published Silmarillion, right? Tolkien didn't finish the thing, right? He had to, um, he had to take, you know, all of these writings and the revisions, you know, from his father and decide which ones, right? To, you know, to put them together into something to present. Well, well obviously we will take Christopher Tolkien's uh, choices into account, but we'll make our own choices there, too. Um, so, um, uh, so anyway, yeah, no, this is going to be... Uh, this is going to be awesome. And yes, several of you are talking about like different, uh, uh, you know, ideas as far as like, uh, casting and costumes and absolutely. Um, I know nothing about those things. I know nothing about casting. I know nothing about, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm no good for concept art. I, uh, I, I wouldn't be able to design a costume to save my life. Um, we are very much looking forward to the contributions of our uh, friends and listeners uh, on these uh, on these crucial subjects. Musicians, by the way, we're going to need a score. Anybody who wants to write the score for the music of the Ainur, or I was just reading Baron and Luthien today. Anyone who wants to write both the lyrics and music for the song that Luthien sings before Mandos, start practicing because we're going to need that. So, uh, so get on that. Get on that. Um, anyway. Uh, so, uh, so, okay, well, okay, Karina, I probably could design a costume to save my life, but it would be bad. Um, it would be bad, especially under that kind of pressure. So, anyway, this is going to be terrific fun. Um, we'll, of course, be talking more about this. We're thinking we're probably going to start this up, like, March-ish. We are going to finish, we have a few things to finish up, uh, with the Riddles in the Dark first. Um, and we're looking to, I, I say probably, uh, probably a couple, 
months before we officially start this up, but we're really excited about it. And I wanted, as I said, I wanted to explain uh, a little bit more um, about uh, about what it is uh, that we're actually planning to do. Um, uh, so anyway, our we, so yeah, we're calling it officially the Silmarillion Film Project. So, uh, uh, and that's why I've been using the uh, uh, Silm Film hashtag, uh, which uh, I have to give uh, Rebecca Eagle credit for that one. She came up with that one in Myth Mode, and I thought it was definitely a winner. Um, uh, oh yes, uh, Michael, uh, Trish, and Dave are going to come back uh, and talk with me. Though we plan to have a bunch uh, more regular guests, um, and that's going. We're kind of going to be. Uh, um, sort of playing that by ear. I mean, basically, the more people get really involved in this, um, you know, basically, we can see them kind of becoming a part of the process. You know, people who are really pouring a lot of their own creative energy into this, you know, will probably want to want to sort of kind of check in with them and what they're doing uh, pretty regularly. So, um, you know, we're, we're kind of we're really sort of open to that. Um, you know, we're not going to give assignments to anybody but we're uh, we're very interested to uh, sort of hear from people who are really excited about the uh, the idea really excited about the project so um so yeah we'll be uh, flexible with that anyway i don't want to take all of my time as uh, tempting as it is to you know whenever i get whenever you start me up on this project uh, uh it's tempting to go on to you know carry on and uh, um talk about it for a long time but i'm going to stop myself because by golly uh we're going to get through watership we're going to get to the end of watership down today and finally get to the stuff that i was pretty sure i wasn't going to get to at the end of last time so there are two sex two things that i want to discuss um uh about the end of watership down we, we looked at the the at at woundwort and the confrontation between bigwig and woundwort um which i have always really felt to be really the climax of uh of the story um now I want to go back and um, uh, look at two different themes. The first is this theme of natural and unnatural things. You know, um, things being natural. This is something we've come back to a lot, right? We, this was a, a, a very forcibly thrust upon us uh, with Cowslip's Warren, right? Um, that's where we say you know, the unnaturalness of those rabbits. But then we were looking at the way in which, in the conversation between Blackberry and Hazel on Watership Down, right after they arrive at the beginning of Book Two, when they talk about stepping out consciously to begin doing things which they would have dismissed as unnatural. The issue in question at that particular moment um, was uh, Bucks digging um, um, the Warren, right? Bucks digging burrows. Um, and right after that, as you'll recall in that class, we were looking at Hazel's unorthodox idea, which really stretched the, you know, the kind of worldview of the other rabbits in Watership Down about reaching out to the other kinds of animals um, on Watership Down in order to get their help. Um, and again, that's not natural. It's not normal. It's not how, how rabbits generally behave. Um, the main thing I want to come back to here at the end, of course, then we meet Ephrafa, and there's all of this, you know, again, the, emph the emphasis on the unnatural life um, that rabbits lead um, in Ephrafa. And, of course, with General Woundwort as the sort of centerpiece of the unnaturalness with, with the deeply unnatural ferocity, how he's not like a rabbit at all, how he always thinks about fighting first. He never, um, you know, that, that fundamental characteristic of rabbits, which has been, you know, we've seen from the very beginning, from the blessing of the bottom of El right? 
Um, Elohera was given not, you know, teeth and claws with which to destroy his enemies, um, but, you know, he was made the swift, the swift runner, um, uh, and thus enabled to escape from them. And running away, we have seen as, in a sense, almost like the core of rabbitly virtue. Remember way back at the, you know, I think in the very first class, I was pointing to this as one of those ways in which the story really invites us to leave our human biases aside and kind of enter into that secondary rabbit world right in the very beginning. Um, the idea that running away from danger is not cowardly, but actually, in a sense, actually noble. And the, 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 that first story of the blessing of Elachrera seems to me to kind of you know, suggest that, certainly gives running away from danger a really, a really good pedigree. So again, wound warts, complete failure to run away from stuff um, makes him a deeply unnatural rabbit um, and uh, even if he didn't seem to be crazy in other ways that would be uh, um, that would be pretty questionable but what I want to emphasize here at the end of book four is how unnatural the watership down rabbits themselves are right what we have in this story is not a simple kind of thing, right? It's not just the watership down rabbits are perfectly natural. Like they are living mainstream, you know, rabbit life, right? And, and kind of having to walk the middle path between different kinds of extremes, right? Cowslips worn with their extreme submissiveness to the men over here and Ephrapha with its extreme suspicion, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of, you know, military basis over here, right? And then there's the watership down being like, you know, the perfect example of m- normal mainstream rabbitry. Um, it might kind of, uh, there are moments when it might sort of seem like that's the overall shape of things, but that's only the shape of things if we don't pay attention <laughs> to what's going on at watership down. Look at um, the final, mo- Hazel's final plan, right? Not only, of course, uh, is this picking up on the, um, you know, Hazel's quite unnatural, at least, uh, um, you know, not normal, you know, at least abnormal um, idea of, uh, you know, hanging out with other creatures. Um, but, um, uh, but look at the you know some of these passages just really jumped out at me this last time reading through. This is Hazel, of course, on the on the climbing onto the roof of the doghouse um, at Nuthanger Farm. How much noise had he made? How strong was his scent over the tar and straw and farmyard? He waited, tense to jump, expecting movement below. There was no sound. In a terrible miasma of dog smell, which gripped him with fear and called, "Run, run!" down every nerve. He crept forward to where the eye-bolt was screwed into the roof. His claws scraped slightly, and he stopped again. Still there was no movement. He crouched down and began to nibble and gnaw at the thick cord. What I find really striking about this is a combination of two things. Right On the one hand, the emphasis of what his instincts are telling him. Right, The mainstream, mainstream, normal rabbit thing to do is run the heck away from dogs. Right, Dogs are extreme, despite what Woundward says, dogs are extremely dangerous. Apart from man, they are like the, the, the alpha elil that we meet. 
um, just it, it, due to their size, if nothing else. They're far bigger than any other form of ewill that the rabbits come up against. Um, so, uh, uh, so, okay, so, so that's, that's one thing, right? So the, the mere fact that Hazel is pushing himself to seek out the dog instead of running away from it, right, is, um, uh, is, is already a reversal of his instincts. But this is, to me, made a lot more poignant by the fact that what's happening here is almost normal, or rather has the sort of shadows of normal rabbit behavior. This is a, a farm raid, right? They're raiding a farmyard. Um, and even the, that final that final description, right, he crouched down and began to nibble and gnaw at the thick cord, going into a dangerous place, mischievously on purpose, in order to crouch down and nibble and gnaw at something you shouldn't be nibbling and gnawing at... Well, that's rabbit nature, right? That's totally normal. That's completely natural. Um, that uh, love of mischief, that desire to transgress. Um, and remember, this was even... We were sort of reminded of this, right? When the when Hazel and the others are coming into the farmyard and they pass by this pile of vegetables, uh, you know, and, and they... But they pass it by, right? So here's, the, here the, you know, here's this golden opportunity for rabbits in a farmyard to eat some flayra and get away with it. And they're like, no, we mustn't focus on the flayra. We must instead go find the dog. I mean, it's just exactly the most unnatural thing that rabbits could be doing under the circumstance. And the fact that it's done in this kind of almost, it's almost like a parody of a garden raid, right? Um, they're going to go in and, che- and instead they're just going to set the dog on themselves instead of 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 gnawing the vegetables, setting getting the dog set on them is what normally the th- the one thing they're most trying to avoid, right? And yet they've gone here with the express idea of setting the dog on themselves. Um, it's uh, it's 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 sort of it, one of those moments where again it, the momentum of this in the momentum of the story. It makes perfect sense. We know that you know Fiverr has received this message from Elahera. We can see what Hazel is doing and why he's doing it. And, you know, it's not like we think ill of them, of course, at any moment for this. But but just when you back up from it and stop and think about it, you realize these rabbits seem insane, right? They're not. Again, they're not. But why not? That's what I want to really kind of put pressure on here. Because, again, if we just say, well, the Watership Down rabbits are normal and the other rabbits are not... That's not a fit explanation of it. They are at least as abnormal, at least as unnatural, as ever cowslipper general Woundwort was. That's not where the difference lies, right? The difference is not between normality and abnormality. The difference is between flavors of abnormality, right? What kind of abnormality do uh, Hazel and company have that's different from the kind of abnormality that Woundwort and cowslip have? Um, I'd be really interested to hear what you guys think about that. I'll give one more example, and then I'll come back. Uh, but I, but I'll, I'll be really interested to hear you know your thoughts about that question. As I'm going to give you some time to type here too. Um, this is um, Dandelion. He tore over the crest and down toward the cattle shed. When Hazel had told him what he was to do, it had seemed to him that his task would consist of leading the dog on and persuading it to follow him. Now he was running simply to save his life, and that at a speed he had never touched before, a speed he knew he could not keep up. 
In actual fact, Dandelion covered three hundred yards to the cattle shed in a good deal less than half a minute. Okay, confession. How many people calculated his speed? I can never help myself. Um, depends on how much less than half a minute, of course, he, uh, he, he traveled. If he made it the 300 yards to the cattle shed in 25 seconds, he was going about 25 miles an hour or so. Uh, but if he did it, uh, if he did it in more closer to 20 seconds, he might have been hitting 30. Um, uh, Rabbit's top speed is normally, uh, is reputedly supposed to be about 20 miles an hour. Uh, so uh, Dandelion is really hauling tail down the down the lane here. Um, but as he reached the straw at the entrance, it seemed to him that he had run forever. Hazel and the farmyard were long, long ago. He had never done anything in his life but run in terror down the lane, feeling the dog's breath at his haunches. Inside the gate, a big rat ran across in front of him, and the dog checked at it for a moment. Dandelion gained the nearest shed, and went headlong between two bales of straw at the foot of a pile. It was a narrow place, and he turned round only with some difficulty. The dog was immediately outside, scratching eagerly, whining and throwing up loose straw as it sniffed along the foot of the bales. "'Sit tight,' said a young rat from the straw close beside him. "'It'll be off in a minute. They're not like cats, you know.' "'That's the trouble,' said Dandelion, panting and rolling the whites of his eyes. "'It mustn't lose me, and time's everything.' "'What?' said the rat, puzzled. "'What you say?' "'Again, the combination of something extremely normal, right? "'As normal as a garden raid, "'that is, running away from the dog that chases you "'in the middle of the garden raid, right? "'Like Rousby Woof in the story. Um, nothing, "'Nothing could be more natural than either of those two things, right? "'And yet again, we are reminded... Having, especially having, you know, that description of his running and the way that sort of his primal fear and instincts take over, um, he is no lo- he's no longer executing a plan, right? He's just doing what rabbits do, which is running for his life away from the predator. Um, but uh, in the end, he still turns, right? You know, that exchange with the rat... Um, where the rat speaks with him under the absolute and quite natural assumption that Dandelion's desire is to escape the dog, right? But uh, but no, no, Dandelion expresses the reverse of this. It mustn't lose me and times everything. Um, and the rat is just completely puzzled by this. Indeed, it's quite a puzzling thing, right? Um, and again, that's, that's my only point. Uh, Obviously, I don't intend this as a criticism of the Watership Down Rabbits, but again, I think it's easy for us to make assumptions, which I think that we shouldn't um, that we shouldn't make. Um, so let's see. Um, okay, I'm going back and looking at some of your your own thoughts here. Um, Gerald has an interesting observation that I that I think. It, it, it's well, it would be well for us to take into account as we think this through. Uh, Gerald says, It's interesting that Ella Herrera often reaches out to other creatures, yet it's not normal for real rabbits. Um, yes, yes. The resourcefulness of Ella Herrera, um, uh, and his. But notice, though, notice that Hazel has kind of one-upped Ella Herrera. Of course, the primary story of Ella Herrera reaching out to other creatures is the trial of Ella Herrera. You'll recall that that's the context in which the trial of Ella Herrera's story is raised, right? When, you know, back in, in book two with Hazel's idea, and uh, um, 
the rabbits expressing skepticism and then, you know, um, uh, that's the story that Bluebell tells, isn't it? Bluebell says, no, Elohera did it once. Isn't that Bluebell? Um, anyway, good. Philip, that's exactly the point I was going to make. Elohera uses other animals. Hazel communes with them. Yeah, Elohera bribes them, right? Um, he, he, he bribes Yana the Hedgehog, and he bribes um, uh, uh, what's his name? Hawcock the Pheasant? Isn't that his name? Um, yeah, he bribes them, right? He doesn't approach them with... He doesn't try to befriend them exactly, right? Um, he just kind of pays them off. Um, I get Hazel seems to have gone even further than El Herrera, uh is doing it. Um, uh, but anyway, nevertheless, Gerald, I want to come back to your, your observation. Um, you're right that that's not normal for real rabbits, but Elohera does do it. So that's that's an interesting thing to keep in mind. Um, Gerald follows that up, asking, are the Watership Down rabbits channeling Elohera better than other rabbits? Um, exactly. That's an interesting... That's the interesting question to me, right? Um, that... Uh, is that, in fact, what we're seeing? Um, Elohera is tricky. Well, <laughs> certainly true. But no, I mean... Um, He's an unusual plot. He's an unusual data point, right? I mean, on the one hand, he's the definition of what rabbits are, right? I mean, we've been talking about that throughout the class. That he's he is he is the reference point for rabbit culture. But at the same time, he is extraordinary. He's not normal in the sense of being average, right? In the sense of being typical of rabbits. He is an exemplar for rabbits, but that's not the same thing as being like other rabbits, right? So in a sense, becoming extraordinary, that is, there's more about it than just being normal or being average. Um, you can be extraordinary, but extraordinary in that good way that is becoming more like um, like Elohera. Um, Arthur couldn't avoid thinking of uh, uh, with uh, the description of Hazel climbing onto the top of the uh, the doghouse, he couldn't uh, help but remember Bilbo going down the tunnel to Smaug's lair. Um, I hear you, Arthur. I think that that's a, that is an interesting parallel. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, Kate pointing out how, though Fiverr, of course, is the most manifestly abnormal of the Watership Town rabbits, um, that Hazel is also remarkable in his sensitivity uh, to other creatures, and he also lives longer than normal. Um, yes, yes, good. Um, yeah, yeah. Karita makes a really cool observation, as she so want to do. Uh, she says uh, the reason, their very reasonable fear, both of Hazel and of Dandelion in these descriptions, the reasonable fear of the dog is far different from the battle cry of dogs aren't dangerous. I agree. Um, that seems to be one thing that we can look at, I think, that we can kind of hold to as a fundamental difference between Woundwart's kind of abnormality and their kind of abnormality, right? Um, he, they have a normal rabbit way of looking at things, right? They are terrified of the dog, but they overcome their, they willingly overcome that terror 
in order to achieve something else, right? In order to, um, you know, even sacrifice themselves as, you know, Dandelion and, and, and Blackberry, both of them go into the dog expedition there, um, recognizing there's a really very good chance they're going to be killed. Um, in fact, it's kind of one of the unspoken reasons why there are two of them, right? Why Hazel doesn't cha- just take one with him, so that in case the dog gets one of them, there's still one more of them to, uh, you know, there's still the other to try to lure the dog. Um, uh, so, again, it's, again, a full recognition of how dangerous dogs are. Therefore, there's a kind of... There's something more like delusion, right? Not the choice to overcome instincts when there is a need, um, but something more delusional. Now, but we have to put a little asterisk next to the word delusion, right, with Woundwort, because he's kind of right, right? I mean, like, he's not simply delusional to say that he can stand up to Elil. He does stand up. He even stands up to the dog successfully, um, in a sense, or as far as we know. The evidence does suggest that Woundwort was in fact not killed by the dog. If he were killed, his body would still be there, presumably. Um, as we have no reason from what the narrator tells us to believe that the dog killed him and carried off the body, which would be the other explanation. Um, so, uh, now, again, not true to say that dogs aren't dangerous. They are! But, um, but still, again, you can't just dismiss Woundwort as delusional. But, but still, Karita, I think that that's an important distinction, right? It's a um, Woundwort has more of a fundamental worldview change, right? He doesn't think or react like other rabbits at all. They, the water-shaped down rabbits, do think and react like other rabbits. It's the choices that they make that are different, right? Whereas, again, similarly, Cowslip and his warren, which I don't want to totally leave out of this conversation, um, they do, I mean their own sort of reactions to things seems seem to have atrophied in certain ways. Um, again, in a very different direction from Woundwort's. But again, they don't seem to look at things the same way um, that the Watership Down rabbits do. Um, it's one of the things, again, that we see with Strawberry when he leaves. His, uh, his mourning for his mate who's killed, Nildrohane. Um, that already... Like, he has parted ways with the other rabbits of the Warren in the Snares. Not just when he comes and, you know, enlists with Hazel, but in his uttering of the name of his mate, right? His speaking of the, the where, you know, answering a where question. Um... That is to say, his refusal just to kind of write off and distance himself from, uh, you know, a sort of a normal reaction to these kinds of circumstances. So, Karita, I think that that's a really interesting way. Um, uh, uh, I think that, that, that that's a really interesting way to think about it. Carolyn has a wonderful observation. Carolyn Morehouse, um, thinking of uh, of Hazel in the doghouse, is reminded of the Gom Jabbar in Dune. Uh, that is that test of whether you're a beast or whether you're a human. Um, and remember, uh, you know, as Carolyn is reminding me, that that test, of course, is uh, a test of how you respond to instinct. Right? You feel pain. Do you do you jerk your hand out, or can you steel yourself not to jerk your hand out of the pain box? Um, how do you... Re- can you, through your reason, master 
your animal reactions to things, right? Um, so Caro and yeah, if this is his gom jabar, he passes, right? And uh, it shows that. But to say that uh, he's a human, this would be a merely an insult, I think, to Hazel. Um, but nevertheless, I think that that's a that that is an interesting parallel. There is that certainly does seem to be with both Dandelion and Hazel the thing that's happening, right? Um, what they believe, their convictions, um, their reason, right? The plan is a is a is a is a is a rational plan. It's the only thing. Uh, that can be done to save the Warren from the Ephraphans. Um but doing it involves them in overcoming all of their normal instincts. That is to say, their animal instincts. Um, good. Tom Hillman makes an excellent point. Just sort of remind the the reminder that um, you know, as the book goes on, it's harder to say what is normal. Um, yeah, I agree. Even even the uh, Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, in a sense, it's almost. I mean, you think about the relationship. Think about the water chip down, Warren. Not only in, um, not only in contrast to Cowslips Warren and Ephrafa, um, but in comparison to the Sandalford Warren that they left at the beginning, right? Um, and in one sense you could say that the Sandalford Warren is probably the most normal rabbit culture that we see in the sense that there's a, there's almost nothing extraordinary about it, right? The Cowslips Warren is extraordinarily twisted in one way. Ephrafa is extraordinarily twisted in a different way. Um, the, uh, um, the, the, um, Watership Down Warren, of course, is extraordinary in a different way. Um, but, uh, but I certainly don't think that it's really safe to say. So, you know, maybe, Tom, you're right. Maybe what we should be doing is sort of leaving the words normal behind. Um, I would want to go back to the vocabulary I started with, which is not normal and abnormal, but natural and unnatural, right? Um, and uh, and maybe here, coming back to the points that, uh, um, that Carita and Gerald were making earlier on, the question is not about... That is the uh, distinction is between one of ends and means, right? Um, uh, are the ends natural or unnatural, and are the means natural or unnatural, right? The ends, the sort of the goals, what Cowslips Warren and what Ephrafa are doing, um, their trajectories are towards something deeply unnatural. The Watership Down Warren is embracing something. Ultimately, its goal, its vision, is very natural. Now, they take unorthodox routes to that, right? They do things which would have been considered unnatural. Um, If you'd sat them down at the beginning of the book, right, and described the riding on boats and befriending uh, gulls and uh, deliberately setting a dog on themselves, they would have said that they were going crazy. Um, but, uh, but nevertheless, their central vision, the central goal is simply, you know, remember it's like the vision that, uh, you know, that Bigwig described and Heisenthalay embraced in Ephrafa, right? Morning and evening Silflay every day, you can choose your own mates, um, you know, it's a fine life on the Downs, um, that's a natural life for rabbits. 
Um, yeah. Okay, I wish I could get to all the comments, which I, I don't think I can. Um, uh, besides which, I want to make sure we... Uh, um, I want to make sure we get through all the things I want to get through here. Um, yeah, good. Josh Evans says, the rabbits were able to change and stay true uh, to their rabbit their rabbit hearts. Yes, it, it, it is a question, I think, about changing the means but not the ends. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, good, good. Um, yeah, interesting. Philip Lord points out that uh, Woundwort seems to pass the Gomjabar test too. But see, Philip, actually, I think that that comparison really sort of cements it for me even more. Woundwort, in a sense, isn't uh, passing it in that he is not overcoming his impulses. He just has no impulse. I mean, he's like... Um, I mean, thinking of the Gom Jabbar and the way the Gom Jabbar works in Dune, with the you know putting your hand in the box of pain and not withdrawing it, it's almost instead like he's got no nerve endings in his hands. You know, I mean, um, his is the reaction of one who doesn't feel the pain, um, rather than one who masters it. And again, you know, this going back to I think was it Carita's point about um, you know them not. Uh, him not fearing the dog, whereas obviously Dandelion and Hazel do. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, interesting, Caritas making a distinction between being a hero and being a legend. And we'll come back to that, Carita. We're almost there. Um, but thinking of Woundwort and his legend, um, let's, uh, so I, thinking about the unnaturalness of the of the general, I wanted to to, to look at this the this the penultimate general wound work passage. He isn't dead, you know, broke in Groundsel. The others were silent. He hasn't stopped running, said Groundsel passionately. Did you see his body? No. Did anyone? No. Nothing could kill him. He made rabbits bigger than they've ever been, braver, more skillful, more cunning. I know we paid for it. Some gave their lives. It was worth it to feel we were Ephraphans. For the first time ever, rabbits didn't go scurrying away. The Elil feared us, and that was on account of Woundwort, him and no one but him. We weren't good enough for the general. Depend upon it. He's gone to start another warren somewhere else, but no Efferfin officer will ever forget him. Well, now I'll tell you something, began Silver, but Hazel cut him short. You mustn't say you weren't good enough, he said. You did everything for him that rabbits could do, and a great deal more. And what a lot we learned from you. As for Ephrafa, I've heard it's doing well under Campion, even if some things aren't quite the same as they used to be. And listen, by next spring, if I'm right, we shall have too many rabbits here for comfort. I'm going to encourage some of the youngsters to start a new warren between here and Ephrafa, and I think you'll find Campion will be ready to send some of his rabbits to join them. You'd be just the right fellow to start that scheme off. Um, look at... Uh, um, I love Hazel. Think of how Hazel's leadership has developed. I mean, this is so what a smooth way to uh, to divert the quarrel that was just about to break out, right, between Groundsel and Silver. Um, and notice how he does it without 
taking any kind of you know controversial stand. Right? He doesn't come in and comment at all about, on the topic of of the debate, which is the general. Instead, he puts the focus entirely on Groundsel, thus diverting the controversy away from the debate about the general and instead focusing on something to build up uh, Groundsel's own sort of ego. It's, it's, it's an amazingly uh, uh, diplomatic um, uh, move there by Hazel, just absolutely uh, deft there. Um, I want to... Um, I want to say here... This is important for us to remember. Now, Groundsel, you could say that Groundsel is biased. Remember what Silver wanted to point out was Big Week beat him, right? Um, Woonwart isn't that much of a legend. Um, he lost, right? He didn't go out on top. The general didn't. Um, uh, Woonwart, or uh, Big Week beat Woonwart. And, uh, but notice how even Silver later on says, oh, I guess it was just as well that I didn't say that. Right. Um, why? Well, look at what... This is one of the only expressions that we get. Really, I think the only one. Um, the narrator tells us a lot about Woundwort. And it tells us a lot about... He, and the narrator tells us a lot about Woundwort and his relationship to the other officers in Ephrafa. Um But most of the things we hear from other rabbits are either the unquestioning obedience of the officers or the terror of, like, the does in Ephrafa and Bigwig, you know, and his strain uh, during his, uh, uh, you know, during his subterfuge in Ephrafa. Um, I, um, I think it's important that we're given this. It, it, it provides us an important piece, I think, in understanding um, how Woundwort was, what Woundwort was like, to the officers, what he was in the mind of the officers. And this already kind of, uh, you know, hagiographical uh, view of Woundwort that we get, he's not exactly sainted yet, um, but, uh, uh, but again, this now clearly legendary building up of Woundwort in the memory of Groundsel um, is an important thing to recall, right? He wasn't merely... Um, a crack-brained slave driver. He might have been that, um, but he was more than that, too. And no notice what he meant to Groundsel, right? He made rabbits bigger than they've ever been, braver, more skillful, more cunning. Um, and again, it's hard, uh, it's hard not to look at this and look at the, the sort of the, way, the ends and means questions that we were just looking at before. The Elil feared us. Um, for the first time ever, rabbits didn't go scurrying away. You know, and you look at that, it's like, I can see how that's a an enchanting idea, right? Um, but that's an end, which is an unnatural end, right? That's not what rabbits are meant to be like. That's not how the Elecrera stories go. Um, that's never... You know, the chief rabbit is supposed to be Elecrera to his warren. That's not Elecrera. That's never what he did. Um, but... Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, interesting. Kate 
Neville has an interesting point here. Um, Kate says, Woundwort was molding the others into his image. Hazel brought out the best in the individual. What a wonderful observation, Kate. You're absolutely right. What Hazel has been great at from the beginning is seeing what each rabbit is good for, even those who would be dismissed as completely worthless. Of course, the poster child for worthless rabbits who have value uh, at Watership Down has been Pipkin all along, right? Um, you know, runty, timid, uh, I, I, you know, nobody in any kind of a traditional rabbit society, right, in the Sandalford Warren, would ever think that Pipkin was good for anything. Um, and yet, he was has been valued by Hazel from the very, very beginning. Um, good, Philip says, and later Hazel with his lame leg. Exactly, the way that Hazel is overlooked uh, by others. But of course, Hazel's own approach has been... Uh, um, has been... Uh, Hazel's approach has been exactly the opposite uh, of Woundwort's. It has been all about, um, you know, exactly the opposite of that outlook, which, you know, the outlook which led Woundwort and Campion to just dismiss Hazel. Um... But, um, so yeah, so, so Kate, I love that, uh, I love that, that observation. Again, it shows, you know, the, what is, I think, really a fundamental difference between what Woundwort was doing and what Hazel was doing, and even the way in which rabbits are being made greater, right? Even Groundsel's interesting comment, um, I know we paid for it. It was worth it to feel we were Efrafins. Um... I know we paid for it. That is to say, he seems to recognize, I know it's wrong, right? Not just like morally wrong and we were punished by Frith because we were doing something evil. That's not, I think, what he means. Um, like, it's unsustainable, right? Um, if ra- if rabbits are going to be changed that fundamentally, right, that they're going to be made into something fiercer than the Elil, something that just stands up, that stops running, uh, no, oops, goodness, look at that. That was a little uh, rabbit uh, Freudian slip there. That stops running away, I mean, uh, from um, uh, uh, from the Ewil and instead stands up to them. There's that, uh, he's right, I think, to say that there's a price to be paid for that. And the price to be paid was the freedom uh, and the happiness of all the rest of the rabbits in Ephrafa. Right? If rabbits become something fierce, they cease to be rabbits. One of the things that um, rabbits have is that, you know, that animality that Strawberry described. They are fundamentally communal creatures who stick together with each other. Um, and that's not the way it is at Ephrafa, all the way down to the, you know, the ritual uh, wounding of all of the rabbits in the warren in order to mark them um, into their divisions. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yana says that one thing he thinks is interesting is that Woundwort uh, gets defeated without ever knowing who bested him. Um, that is, you know, of course he acknowledges Bigwig, but that, you know, who or what is that uh, uh, that mysterious chief rabbit um, that is somewhere lurking in the... And uh, without it, you know, he never knows. He never finds out that it was that lame rabbit that he dismissed, right? Um I, I too think that that's interesting, Yana. But again, um, it's it, it, it certainly serves to show how thoroughly outside of Woundwort's worldview um, that whole idea is. Um, 
Yeah, good. Karita building on Kate's point. Hazel brings out natural talent that is already present. Woonwart pushed his followers to become more like himself. Notice that both of them create legends, not only of themselves, but of others, right? We were talking about this, right? The legend of Fiverr, the legend of Blackberry, um, the legend of Bigwig. Um, th- those, those, that's, in a sense, Hazel's doing, right? Um, because he brought out their talents, because he um, created a, a, you know, a culture there on Watership Down in which the ability, the, in, the unique abilities of each rabbit could be most useful to all, right? And valued differently by everyone. Um, but Woundward also creates legends. C- Campion being the number one example, and even some of the, some of the officers who have unfortunately died. Um, you know, people, uh, rabbits like Charlock and Mallow, right? Um, who uh, have uh, uh, suffered accidents, which we'll get back around to. Um, but, um, but still, they were legendary rabbits um, in their own time. But again, Karita, as you say, in Woundward's mold, right? Not, um, not on their own. Now, Campion, of course, is the one who's kind of an exception there, right? In that, he is... Uh, um, he's least exactly like Woundward of the others, right? Um, uh, you've got Vervain, who's sort of the, like... Uh, Woundward's mini-me, right? Um, and then you've got, you know, even, you know, j- just as cruel, just as heartless, um, uh, just as fierce, you know, except for when confronted by small prophetic rabbits. Uh, but um, uh, but anyway, I mean, yeah, Campion is different, right? Campion stands out in the Efrafen Ausla. Even Woundward respects Campion, as if recognizing that Campion is not merely a copy of himself. Um, yeah, interesting. Philip sees a parallel between Campion and Holly. Both disagreed with their leaders, but still followed them. Um, yeah, I think that that's. Uh, I think that that's interesting. Yana, I was speaking to you, not about the hedgehog. Uh, <laughs> I know that must be surreal. Um, I could try to inflect it a little bit differently, but uh, anyway. Um, yeah, but Karita, I agree. I too like it that Woundwort died fighting and wasn't driven out in humiliation. Um, yes, yes, I agree. I think that that's um, a fascinating, and I, and this passage is one of the ones that I think to me really drives home the importance of that. Um, that Woundwort too is a legend. Um, uh, <laughs> I can't help but remember Sam's comment in the. Uh, um, in the famous discussion with Frodo about stories on the stairs of Kirathungal, where he says that even Gollum uh, might be uh, might be good in a, might be might be good in a story, better at least than he is to have by you, right? Uh, and uh, Woundwort too is better in a story than he was to have by you. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, yeah. Okay, sorry. Um, <laughs> Arthur is chiding me for making a Tolkien reference. Yes, yes, Arthur, I was totally unprovoked uh, to make that reference. I couldn't help it. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, well, let's. We've already, we're already talking about legends and uh, uh, legends and heroes. Let's uh, 
let's go on and look at this. Notice the process. We've already seen some of it. Remember the, that moment? We talked about this a little bit in the moment when Hazel returns to the Warren uh, after, uh, after being shot. And there's that the sense that, that all the rabbits in the Warren have there at the end of book two, that uh, you know something momentous, like this sort of spiritual change has come upon them. It's not just like, wow, well, man, you know, Hazel's an awesome resource for this Warren, and having lost that resource, we would have been in trouble. There was something much more nebulous to it than that, right? There was this mythic significance of the return of Hazel uh, to the Warren, even at the time, right? Even to those rabbits who were there at the time. Um, we see a similar kind of growth of legend here. I've always loved this moment. At that moment, General Woundwort, out in the open grass below the bank, was facing Thistle and Ragwort in the checkered yellow moonlight of the small hours. "'You weren't put at the mouth of that run to listen,' he said. "'You were put there to stop anyone breaking out. You had no business to leave it. Get back at once.' This is, of course, after Fiverr has just barked underground. "'I give you my word, sir,' said Thistle querulously. There's some animal down there that is not a rabbit. We both heard it. And did you smell it? said Woonwort. No, sir. No tracks or droppings either. But we both heard an animal, and it was no rabbit. Several of the diggers had left their work and were gathered nearby, listening. A muttering began. They had a homba that killed Captain Mallow. My brother was there. He saw it. They had a great bird that turned into a shaft of lightning. There was another animal that took them away down the river. Why can't we go home? The legend of Watership Down grows among the rabbits of Ephrafa. Um, notice the progression there, right? How each one of those things is tied to something that happened, right? Um, but, of course, is not either a misunderstanding of what happened or already an escalation into myth, right? Yes, a humba killed Captain Mallow. Boy, is it hard. I mean, that's a hard one to resist, right? Of course, the, the, the Watership Down rabbits didn't actually sick the humba on Captain Mallow. But boy, is that a hard thing, hard concept to resist, right? It sure looks like it, in retrospect, when you know that Bigwig was working with them and, and you know, the way that all fell out. Um, the idea that there was some strange animal that took them away down the river very natural conclusion by rabbits who, by and large, don't understand, uh, you know, the boat any more than any of the other Watership Down rabbits did, other than Blackberry and Fiverr. Um, and then, of course, the bird turning into a shaft of lightning. Um, again, one can understand uh, where that uh, um, where that comes from. Um, We can so again we see this legend growing, the the sort of the mythic stature that this very strange and unnatural Warren um, is uh, is is developing in their minds, um, and then of course we get the passage that which many of you have been referring to uh, in your comments, and uh, which of course I've been building up to, and that is the overheard story that Vilthoril is telling her litter. So after they had swum the river, said Vilthoril, Elechrera led his people on in the dark through a wild, lonely place. Some of them were afraid, but he knew the way, and in the morning brought them safely to some green fields, very beautiful, with good sweet grass. 
and here they found a warren, a warren that was bewitched. All the rabbits in this warren were in the power of a wicked spell. They wore shining collars round their necks, and sang like birds, and some of them could fly. But for all they looked so fine, their hearts were dark and tharn. So then Elahrera's people said, Ah, see, these are the wonderful rabbits of Prince Rainbow. They are like princes themselves. We will live with them and become princes too. Vilthero looked up and saw the newcomers. She paused for a moment, and then went on. But Frith came to Rabscuttle in a dream, and warned him that the warren was enchanted, and he dug into the ground to find where the spell was buried. Deep he dug, and hard was the search, but at last he found that wicked spell and dragged it out. So they all fled from it, but it turned into a great rat, and flew at Elahrera. Then Elahrera fought the rat up and down, and at last he held it, pinned under his claws, and it turned into a great white bird, which spoke to him and blessed him. "'I seem to know this story,' whispered Hazel, "'but I can't remember where I've heard it.'" Um, Nancy says uh, she's not sure how she fears, uh, feels about Fiverr as Rabscuttle. Um, under the circumstances, I love Fiverr as Rabscuttle. Uh, and by the, first of all, um, when you think about it from one perspective, it makes perfect sense, right? If Hazel is Alacrera, um, well, Rabscuttle is his lifelong companion who always shares a burrow with him, right? Um, so Fiverr is in one sense in the Rabscuttle position. Uh, now, needless to say, the, the, the relationship between Hazel and Fiverr is far from a perfect parallel to the relationship between Elahera and Rabscuttle. But the other thing, Nancy, that I love about the uh, circumstances here is uh, the f- who's telling the story, right? It's Viltharil, Fiverr's mate, who's telling the story. So, you know... Um, uh, casting her uh, casting her buck into the role of Rabscuttle it's hard not to like that uh, I have to admit, I find it adorable um, uh, but anyway um, okay um, so what do we do with this? what do we make of this? I mean, on the one hand I not thinking anything of any sort of other larger implications of this, I find this retelling of the story fascinating. Um, it, I find that it sheds an, a, a really interesting light on the story that, the other story that we already did read, right? The way that this is being characterized, in particular, of course, the business about the Warren of the Snares, that image of them wearing shining collars around their necks, the true sort of the the historical significance of the Warren of the Snares, with you know the snares, um, is lost, but it's it's there, right? It's still symbolically implied in the fact that they're all colored, colored like domesticated beasts, but uh, shining colors to suggest the snares. Um, and then uh, that image again, which not just the uh, casting of him as Rab Scuttle, but you can tell. Um, that there's a kind of a Fiverr-centric uh, angle on this story uh, from from his doe, Viltharil, um, because of the nature of the description, like the, the description of the drama. Um, he dug into the ground to find where the spell was buried. Deep he dug, and hard was the search, but at last he found that wicked spell and dragged it out. Um, 
thinking back to Fiverr's own imagery of like trying to bite the bark and figure out what it was, um, uh, it sounds very you know it's it, this sounds like a sounds very much like a mythic version of this story which has been adapted from Fiverr's version of the story right that he told and what he emphasized. Um, now, what are we? Um, uh, what do we? What do we do here? Um, first of all, one, one other image that several of you are talking about um, is uh, the transformation of the rat into the white bird. Um, Josh Evans says that he, just, he really likes uh, the fact that the evil is transformed into a blessing uh, in that way, uh, and it does seem, doesn't it, Josh, like a um, a really a, a really cool sort of nod to the way in which you know the, the 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 evil things that befall them the challenges which they face are the things which you know through their um you know handling of those situations their response to those situations have been transformed into blessings right kind of like the blessing of Ella Herrera's bottom at the beginning um and uh Michael Jeskowski uh, says the uh, rat turning into a white bird and blessing him uh, reminds him of uh, Jacob wrestling with the angel. Um, uh, yeah, I can see that. Um, uh, and Hazel even limped afterwards. Um, I'd have to think about it more. Uh, uh, but, you know... Jacob is clearly the most Herrera like of the patriarchs, isn't he? Uh, you totally see the whole uh, the whole business with the uh, with the striped and ring streaked rams is totally something that uh, Herrera would have done. Um, if you are uh, if you're unfamiliar with the story, don't worry about it too much. But uh, uh, but anyway, um, yeah, good, interesting. Thomas Johnson points out that he says that, that he likes the. Uh, the oblique reference to silverweed in some of them could fly. Silverweed certainly wanted to, Thomas says, uh, uh, as he says in the poem. Um, yeah, 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 I agree. Um, that That is an interesting kind of literalization of that. That is, you know, the, the sort of, it's being made literally true in, in, in symbol. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but, okay, but but what do we do with this incident in the larger scope of things, right? Or rather, to say it a different way, how does this incident, that is the overhearing of Vilthoril's story, inform our understanding of the legends that are emerging? Now, you know, it's pretty clear that uh, we have heard this story before, though not exactly like that, right? Um what uh, what's happening here? Carita asks the excellent question. Um, does she know the real story and is retelling it in hero mode? How are we supposed to be understanding this? Is this Vilthoril deliberately inventing an Elahuera story, a consciously develop, you know, inventing an Elahuera story, modeled on uh, you know the story of of, of Watership Down? It seems like it. I mean, it's hard for me to see. It's hard for me to see any other explanation 
of it. Um, I don't think that this is confusion. I don't think this is ignorance. You know, ignorance of the of all of the truth and her. You know, sort of putting together this story. I don't think it's coincidence. Um, so yes, I think. Remember, this is happening. All you know, some time has already passed. There's no reason to think that Vilthoril doesn't know the whole story. Um, she's got to know that I uh, that I I I I can't see any really convincing reading that doesn't involve Vilthoril being quite conscious about what she's doing. So the question is, um, as several of you are asking, what does this suggest about the other Elacrera stories? Right? Um, is this, as uh, Nick Marazzo says, uh, you know, is this the way that the legends of Elacrera are formed? You know, that in a sense he is the chief rabbit of every warren. We've seen that, you know, a chief rabbit should be Elacrera to his people. Is Elacrera just, in fact, in that sense, merely this, this sort of crystallization of all of the great chief rabbits that ever have been? Right? Does it actually work the other direction? Um, is uh, Elohera not merely a mythic figure in sort of the greater Lewis and Tolkien sense of the word myth, um, but is he a mythic figure in the much flatter mo- modern sense of that word, right? In the sense that there is no Elohera, he's just a story, um, ba- you know, which was inspired by real events and made sort of bigger. That certainly seems to be a way to read this, right? Um, that soon the story of Hazel and the Watership Down Warren is going to become an Elohera story, right? It's happening here before our eyes. Um, so, um, so that's it, right? But of course, the corollary of that is well, there is no such thing as Elohera, right? Um, the stories are all just stories that emerge like this, you know, from real rabbits who do extraordinary things, and then their story is made into legend and becomes an example and, uh, uh, and you know, again, is sort of branded an Elohera story. Um, uh, look at another example here. General Woundwort was never seen again. But it was certainly true, as Groundsel said, that no one ever found his body, so it may perhaps be that, after all, that extraordinary rabbit really did wander away to live his fierce life somewhere else, and to defy the Elil as resourcefully as ever. Kehar, who was once asked if he would look out for him in his flights over the downs, merely replied, That damn rabbit! I no see him! I no want I see him! Before many months had passed, no one on Watership knew or particularly cared to know whether he himself or his mate was descended from one or two Everfin parents, or from none at all. Hazel was glad that it should be so, and yet there endured the legend that somewhere out over the down there lived a great and solitary rabbit, a giant who drove the Elil like mice, and sometimes went to Silfle in the sky. If ever great danger arose, he would come back to fight for those who honored his name, and mother rabbits would tell their kittens that if they did not do as they were told, the general would get them. The general, who was first cousin to the black rabbit himself. Such was Woundwort's monument, and perhaps it would not have displeased him. 
<laughs> Gerald says, the uh, successful rabbits live on as Ella stories. The unsuccessful rabbits, well, as their cousin to the to the black rabbit, right? Um, uh, yeah, he becomes. Notice the mixture, though, which I find really interesting here in the in the legend of the of of General Woundward. That on the one hand, he's like the well, not the boogeyman, the boogie rabbit, right? You know, he's uh, he's that uh, um, you know that disciplinary figure who will come out to get un, you know bad rabbits. He's what mother rabbits scare their kittens with, but um, at the same time, he's also like you know, some kind of lapine King Arthur, right? Who, if ever, you know, the land is in great need, shall return. Um, that's uh, that's an interesting contrast between those two, right? Um, and yet, both of them are said to be true of him. One last quick point here. Um, one of the words that jumps out at me here, thinking back to our conversation about natural and unnatural, solitary, a great and solitary rabbit, right? Even in this sort of his legendary legendary being, he's, he's conceived of as being solitary, that is deviant in a sense, from normal rabbits. It's not like he's the head of a, this great rabbit counterculture um, and somewhere has raised up this new warren of rabbits who, who chase the Elo-like mice. He lives alone. And uh, that seems again to be communicating something essential about the difference between his unnaturalness and the unnaturalness of the other of the Watership Down rabbits. Um, Tom says, so now we know where he went. Avalon! Right, exactly. Yeah, you can find General Woundwort in Avalon, doubtless, hanging out, you know, with uh, King Arthur and Ransom and other people. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Interesting. Nancy uh, Fosberg suggests that uh, he, that the 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 mixture, the sort of the he shall be the savior who shall return, and he shall be the monster who will punish children, um, seems perhaps to come from the mixing of the two cultures. Rabbits like Groundsel would, of course, tell the King Arthur style stories. Nancy, I think that's 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 uh, that's that's an excellent point. Um, it's an excellent point. Um, okay. Okay. Um, but again, notice, so here, Woundwort has gone into legend, right? And, um, uh, and his first cousin to the Black Rabbit himself, does that mean that the Black Rabbit is similarly legendary in this sense, right? In the sense of just a story, just a legendary concept, just a mythic idea extracted from the extraordinary but mundane um, stories of actual rabbits, right? Um, well, then we get that business at the end, right? Um, this rabbit comes to visit the aged Hazel in his burrow. Yes, of course, said Hazel, hoping he would be able to remember his name in a moment. Then he saw that in the darkness of the burrow, the stranger's ears were shining with a faint silver light. Yes, my lord, he said. Yes, I know you. You've been feeling tired, said the stranger, but I can do something about that. I've come to ask whether you'd care to join my Ausla. We shall be glad to have you, and you'll enjoy it. If you're ready, we might go along now. They went out past the young sentry, who paid the visitor no attention. 
The sun was shining, and in spite of the cold, there were a few bucks and does at Silfle, keeping out of the wind as they nibbled the shoots of spring grass. It seemed to Hazel that he would not be needing his body any more, so he left it lying on the edge of the ditch, but stopped for a moment to watch his rabbits and try to get used to the extraordinary feeling that strength and speed were flowing inexhaustibly out of him and into their sleek young bodies and healthy senses. "'You needn't worry about them,' said his companion. They'll all be, they'll be all right, and thousands like them. If you'll come along, I'll show you what I mean. He reached the top of the bank in a single powerful leap. Hazel followed, and together they slipped away, running easily down through the wood, where the first primroses were beginning to bloom. Which, of course, um, closes the loop. If you're just reading this book for the first time, you may not remember uh, that the first sentence of the book in chapter one is the primroses were over. Um, So we have the end of the season of primroses and the primroses just beginning to bloom at the end, um, which and sort of that cyclical effect of the story here is certainly appropriate to the final themes here of this passage. Um, So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Does this really happen? Is this metaphor? Um, I've been admitting all the way along that uh, I am inclined to believe. Just, you know, my reading of this story is that there are actively sp- uh, supernatural, you know, spiritual forces at work here. Um, you know, we started talking about this uh, more when we were looking at the incident of the train, right, and the whole fiery messenger of Frith thing. Um, because, as you'll recall, that's a situation which really kind of challenges, you know, really sort of prompts this question, right? Um, we're, we're given a kind of interpretive choice in that scene because we know what really happened, right? What really happened was a train came by and ran over Captain Charlock. It wasn't a messenger from Frith, it was just a train, right? It was just like the, you know... You know the 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 five oh seven out of Epping or whatever it was, right? Um, and not only is it not you know this unpredictable and shocking um, event out of the blue, it was probably running right on its timetable, right? Um, again, that's one choice that we can make in response to that scene. The other is to see the thing from Holly's point of view, right? Um, and I think that. The fact that we know that it was actually, you know, the uh, the 507 train out of Epping or whatever, it's not, um, that doesn't undermine the more mythic understanding. Again, I, you know, I'm going over old material here, um, and I think that we can see that kind of, you know, I've been talking about the conspiracy, right, the sort of the, cons- the great conspiracy of events, which leads to the frankly improbable, in several ways, improbable success of all of the plans of uh, the rabbits of Watership Down, um, uh, and ultimately the failure of General Woonwart, who would really seem to have most of the advantages um, in that particular conflict. Again here, we're presented with the same choice, right? We know what really happened here, right? 
Hazel died of old age. Um, as uh, y- you know, Yana, as you were pointing out, um, notice how Hazel leaves his body under the bank. Right? He goes out and dies outside. We, you know, we're told earlier rabbits very rarely die underground. Right? Um, they tend to sneak off and die alone when they know that it's their time to die. So, um, uh, um, <laughs> Nancy says, what she does with this passage is cry on the bus. Um, yes, yes. And Arthur was just saying the same thing. You know, the first thing we do with this passage is cry. Um, yes, yes, I agree. I find, uh, um, uh, I find this, uh, uh, a very moving passage. Um, so again, we know what really happened here. Right? Hazel went out and died of old age. That's what really happened. But again, here, much more forcibly um, than in the train passage, the other side, or rather the, the, the sort of rabbit spirituality reading is superimposed upon that naturalistic phenomenon much more fully. Right? Um, we may feel like we have to make a choice earlier on between do we see this as just a train and probably a coincidence, or do we see this as a fiery messenger of Frith? Again, we, we we can kind of embrace both, but again, it's sort of, is this a supernatural event or is this a natural event, right? Um, and the train, at the very least, it's easier just to choose one path or the other there. Here, I think much less so, much less easy to just choose the paths. Instead, it seems to be much more clearly um, a glimpse behind the curtain, right? Yes, Hazel is dying of old age. Here's what a rabbit, especially a rabbit hero like Hazel, dying of old age actually looks like. Um, I, in this sense, um, find the intervention of Ella Herrera at the end... Um, I mean, I'm inclined to take that quite literally, um, especially going back to all the Fiverr stuff, right? And what has been revealed to us through Fiverr's prophetic visions, um, you know, really Fiverr's whole prophetic career, that sense of that other place, right? That El can go back and forth between them at will, as Fiverr's kind of heard is the case. Um, this is... Uh, you know all of you know the way in which at times those others you know can cross over and you've got poor rabbits like silverweed who are in one sense kind of living in both places and being drawn away drawn out of the uh of the mundane world and further into the spiritual world ultimately um fiverr says to his sort of inevitable death um fiverr too you know, having not fully returned, um, you know, to our world from that other place after his final vision. Um, Hazel is now, upon his death, being accepted, you know, into that other world um, and being invited to join El Herrera's Ausla. And again, what a wonderful thing. Um, it's This is like the... F- in that sense, I love the way in which that action is like the 
final crowning commendation on Hazel and his whole approach, right? Not only, I mean, the mere fact, of course, that he's being invited to be a member of Elahuera's Ausla, right, sort of shows Elahuera's endorsement of him. But it's not just that. It's that the invitation of Hazel into the Ausla is itself an exactly Hazel-like move, right? Only Hazel would have looked at this, you know, resourceful, courageous, um, level-headed, limping, <laughs> you know, not enormously physically imposing rabbit, and say, oh yeah, Ausla material, right? Um, Elahera appreciates him for what he is, and it's clear that there is a spot in Elahera's Ausla um, for rabbits like Hazel, and not just rabbits like Bigwig. Um, I'm assuming Bigwig's going to make Elahera's Ausla too. Um, but, um, uh, anyway, yeah, Mark Willie says, uh, with this ending, I have such an, a mixed emotional reaction. Never have I felt such a poignant sense of loss while at the same time feeling a great sense of happiness for Hazel going on into the afterlife. Um, yeah, yeah, I find it... I, in many ways, I find, you know, there's the sense of loss... But it's. I think that the passage really kind of tries to mitigate that, in a sense, um, not only through the reassurances, you know, that they'll all be they'll be all right and thousands like them, but that description of uh, that extraordinary feeling that Hazel has of strength and speed flowing inexhaustibly out of him and into their sleek young bodies and healthy senses, um, that in a sense, he isn't being lost, right. Um, it's easy to imagine, you know, the lament and the mourning for Hazel, the by this time, you know, great and legendary chief rabbit, um, and yet he's not lost truly. Um, anyway, um, yeah, yeah, and as Patrick points out, there's no pain, there's no suffering; he just leaves his body behind. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, in the end, now going back to Vilthril's Elahrera story, does the composition of Vilthril's Elahrera story suggest that there is no real Elahrera, right? That the stories of Elahrera are a mere sort of legendary composite of, you know, based on the the adventures of of you know real life chief rabbits that have that have, you know, ascended into this sort of mythic and legendary stature, um, well, no. There appears to be an Elahuera who is inviting Hazel to join his Ausla. Rather, it seems to work in the other way, right? Um, just as Hazel's strength and speed are flowing out of him and into the other rabbits, so Elahuera's attributes, the gifts of Elahuera, have been flowing into Hazel all along. Um, that story that Vilthril's telling, is that the story of Hazel and Fiverr? Or is it the story is it an Elahrara story, the story of Elahrara and Rabscuttle? It's both, in a sense. You know, there's a sense in which these distinctions the distinctions between the naturalistic explanation, is it just a train, and the broader spiritual explanation, is it a messenger of Elahrara? 
where the distinction between them really ceases to matter at all um, and seems to begin to sound like a bit of a silly question. Um, and that seems to me where the story kind of leaves us with this question of their of their legends. In the end, it's rabbit mythology. And rabbit mythology seems to be shock of shocks, based fundamentally on this really intimate sense of community, this sense of oneness among rabbits, right? Um, and so, yes, were those Hazel's adventures? Yes, they were. Were those the adventures of El Herrera? Well, yes, in a sense, they were. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, interesting. Nick Marazzo says, The narrator gives us the death of Hazel in his own perspective, saying, I cannot, that is the narrator's own perspective, saying, I cannot tell how many springs later, but includes Hazel's thoughts, words, and perspective. I've always thought this to be a true ending from Hazel's perspective, but discovering the narrator's personalization, it does introduce doubt. It ultimately comes down to whether you choose to believe in the Black Rabbit or not. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, again, you can you can distance yourself from it, but I, can, I find myself resisting that distancing. Um, and to me, it seems like sort of, at the end of the story, we're being invited to make that last step into that secondary rabbit world, right? Um, that last step, the step that Hazel is making from this one world, the natural, mundane world around us, into that wider, other wild world um, that Fiverr was occasionally in touch with, or was occasionally in touch with him, um, and, uh, and, and into which Hazel is sort of transitioning here at the end. Um, and, uh, uh, and again, we can... We can choose to resist that, but I think that if we do, again, it's just us pulling back and thinking, and sort of thinking from a human point of view instead of from the rabbit point of view. Um, it is definitely my reading that the story is inviting us to make that transition along with them. Um, I still have a little bit of time to talk about questions and things. Um, let me um, Let me quickly bring up two other small Notes. One, I want to pick up on a uh, uh, question that we talked about a long time ago, um, which is uh, the epigraphs at the beginning of the chapters. Um, uh, Nancy, I think it's you who was talking about the Blake one, right? Um, looking at s sort of the relationships between those, sort of figuring out how, the, how those worked. Um, I wanted to just share my very favorite chapter epigraph in the entire book. Um, the epigraph of the last chapter. Not the epilogue, the, the final chapter. Professing myself, moreover, convinced that the general's unjust interference, so far from being really injurious to their felicity, was perhaps rather conducive to it, by improving their knowledge of each other and adding strength to their attachment, I leave it to be settled by whomever it may concern. doesn't even finish that one sentence by Austin. I absolutely love this epigraph. And um, the relevance of this epigraph to uh, the story is obvious, right? Especially with the general's unjust interference and the two Warrens being brought closer together, uh, uh, you know, so far from uh, it's being really injurious to their felicity, uh, was perhaps rather conducive to it. The way that it works with this story is absolute genius, and it's like ten times 
more wonderful if you know the story that it's coming from, if you know Austin's <laughs> Northanger Abbey. Um, uh, yes, it is, as uh, Carita and Nancy are both saying, it is, uh, uh, this This is a, a quotation which is being taken wildly out of context and and uh, and planted uh, into into a new place. Um, and it's fantastic. It's just absolutely, it's so brilliant the way that he's done that. Um, and to me, this is why, th- th- this is the one I was thinking of. Um, the question, and I forget who exactly was asking it, but the question that, that uh, I shall use the evasive passive that I was being asked before, um, was about the relationship. I know, Nancy, I remember you about the, 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 the Blake one. Well, maybe it was in the context of your email, Nancy, so I'll give you credit for it. Um, uh, about sort of what is the relationship between the, these these epigraphs and the chapters, especially since we spent so much time in the Dune class um, uh, just before looking at the relationship between the Princess Irulan uh, quotations at the beginning of the chapters uh, and the story itself. Um, uh, it's... Um, this to me is the is, you know uh, Nancy way back then that this is the answer that I wanted to give this passage is the example I wanted to give. Um, I think that most of the time the epigraphs seem to work like this. That is, the actual quotation, like the the, the content of the lines there on the page, are relevant. Often very cleverly relevant. I also my possibly my second favorite. I think I think probably my second favorite one is the quotation from the Book of Acts um, uh, in the crossing of the River Enborn, um, you know, and uh, uh, and thus some on boards and some on bro- broken pieces of the ship, uh, they all arrived safe to land. Um, again, like, it's about the, you know, the shipwreck of the, uh, 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 of the Apostle Paul, who's being taken a prisoner to Rome. Um, uh, you know, so it's, it's, again, it's completely irrelevant. Uh, apart from the fact that that one quotation taken out of context is marvelously relevant uh, to the events of that chapter. That is to say, they se- it seems to function more like a kind of joke. Um, but even that joke, of course, the general uh, and uh, the... Uh, the general and his unjust interference. Of course, he's he's very he's quite different from General Woundwort, and the circumstances are rather not the same. Um, you know, this is uh, you know referring to the guardian of one of the young lovers in question in Northanger Abbey. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. But I think that there is, I think that there is, nevertheless, an overall trend that is when I say that that's that they they work almost like jokes. It's not that I think that they're merely throwaways, right? That it's simply comedy, or that it's merely comical. Um, one of the overall trends that I would suggest, again, the fact that you have to t- many, not all, but mm, somewhere between many and most of the passages, you have to take them out of context for them to be directly relevant to the passage that uh, to, you know, to the the chapter that follows. Um, suggests to me a really interesting kind of shift of perspective, right? Um, it shows a kind of connection between the story that you're reading, the rabbit story, and these other stories that are being quoted and, and alluded from. Um, 
you know, you've got to, um, uh, you've got to sort of shift your perspective in order for those quotations to make sense. Um, and, uh, again, to me, it's almost like it's, it's parallel to the way in which, um, throughout the story, we are being invited to shift our perspective and look at things, not from a human point of view, um, but from a rabbit point of view. Um, and so we get this kind of reinvention of these stories uh, through the uh, um, through their placement in these chapters. Um, one other point that I wanted to make, and this was something that uh, Ed Powell and I were talking about right before the class started, um, and Ed pointed this out to me. Um, Dr. Adams arrived soon after ten. Lucy, who was making her bed and tidying her room later than she should have been, heard him stop his car under the elms at the top of the lane and went out to meet him, wondering why he had not driven up to the house as usual. And uh, Yana had asked, Is Dr. Adams based on Richard Adams? And more importantly, is this based on something that really happened to him? No and yes. Um... Ed and I had this conversation at the beginning of the semester where he sent me this email and was like, holy crap, I can't believe I've read this book, I don't know how many dozens of times over my life, and I totally missed the Dr. Adams point. And I have to admit, when he said that, my very first reaction was, what Dr. Adams point? I, I, I barely even noticed this reference ever. Um, like, I don't think it ever struck me as significant, one, significant once in my life that in this one little reference, the doctor is called Dr. Adams. Um, I think perhaps because he is most commonly referred to by Lucy merely as doctor, like Lucy and her dad just call him doctor. Um, so that's how I always thought of him. But holy cow, and it turns out, yes, actually, this is relevant. It's not Richard Adams himself, but seems quite transparently based on Richard Adams's dad. Richard Adams's father was, in fact, a country physician who drove around and did house calls uh, in this region. And in fact, uh, Richard Adams tells stories of um, himself as a child traveling around with his dad uh, in his car and going with him on his rounds right here in this exact area around Watership Down. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, this is based on something that really happened to him. Uh, and uh, imagining that uh, that connection with Richard Adams's father there, with the benevolent Doctor Adams uh, that we meet there at the end, uh, is a lovely is a lovely kind of thing. Um, Yana had uh, several uh, points. Um, two, uh, one, one other that I'll quote here. Um, he. Uh, <clears throat> makes an interesting observation and then asks a fascinating question. Worst of them all, Rousby Woof, is the great rat spirit, the giant of Sumatra, the curse of Hamelin. I love the reference to Hamelin, Yana says, and logically it's famous rat catcher. The real question is how would rabbits know about it, and what would the Lapine version sound like? Of course, the famous rat catcher of Hamelin, in case you don't remember, is the Pied Piper. This is, uh, um, this is, uh, uh, the Pied Piper of Hamelin uh, is, uh, is, is who we're referring to here. And Yana's question is an excellent one. How do the rabbits know the story of the Pied Piper of Hamelin? Um, you know, there has to be a... Re it can't be a coincidence that the great rat spirit is associated specifically with Hamelin, right? Um, so... Um, 
how did they learn, as uh, Michael Truskowski says, the same way they know about camels, right? Um, uh, um, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, long grass rumors. There does seem to be some kind of transmission here. I don't know whether this is supposed to be... Um, I don't know whether this is supposed to be natural or supernatural. Again, in as much as we're supposed to invest in this at all, um, I mean, I don't know that we need build a whole philosophy and theology upon this one reference to the curse of Hamelin. But um, two things that I can't help but recall from the story earlier on. One is that almost all animals seem to be able to converse with each other. Um, that is, like we see, for instance, on two different occasions, uh, Hazel and a cat communicating with each other. Um, could a domesticated animal have heard this story from humans and circulated among the animal kingdom? That seems conceivable. The other thing that I can't help but think of is Fiverr's dream, um, where he was talking to the man by the message board, and you remember that the man in his dream was revealing to him things which men know, but which Fiverr couldn't possibly know under any other circumstance. A human thing, um, which, um, uh, which, to which Fiverr could not possibly have any sort of naturalistic um, um, access. And yet, he heard it, he knew it uh, in this dream. Um, to me, I, uh, um, to me it seems... I'm, I'm actually even more... You know, Jan, I'm even more interested in your second question. What would the Lapine version sound like? Um, or to, 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 to lean on that a little bit more. The context in which the Pied Piper is alluded to within the Rasby Wolf story, right? Worst of all, Rasby Wolf is the great rat spirit, the giant of Sumatra, the curse of Hamelin. The giant rat spirit who was, uh, you know, the champion or moving force behind the rat invasion of Hamelin, which was cured by the Pied Piper. But, of course, it's there's no reference to the Piper himself, just to the rats. And it's done in the context, of course, of, of Rasby Woof being such a great ratter, right? Um, such, a, such a valiant foe of this enemy of dogs, uh, you know, who are, who are rats. So that kind of puts Rouseby Woof parallel with the Pied Piper, right? Obviously, their approaches are pretty different. Um, but thinking about the depiction of, um, uh, but thinking about the depiction of Rouseby Woof in this story and the sort of scorn in which he is held, um, uh, it's um, hardly a flattering uh, just gives a very flattering impression of uh, the Pied Piper story 
um, one is tempted to say, Yana, that the the Lapine version of the story would be very different. Um, and excellent, Thomas, thank you for the reminder there. We've seen rabbit repurposing of human tales before. There's apparently a rabbit version of the Noah story. Remember the story about the great flood uh, when Frith flooded the world, and uh, uh, but, a, but a man built a giant hutch? Remember that? Absolutely. Good. Very good. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yep, no, we've seen that, uh, we've seen that before. Um, anyway, um, two more, uh, two more issues. Well, okay, three, three more issues. Almost done, almost done. Um, two points on Dea Ex Machina at the end of the story. In an article found on the Mythgard Academy page, Adams claims that he does not write people well, and after reading chapter 48, Dea Ex Machina, I would have to respectfully disagree. In this brief chapter, <clears throat> we learn much about Lucy, who is perhaps the Dea of the machine, her father, who is hard but fair, and the good doctor, who hides behind a hard exterior. In a few short pages, we get a clear picture of life on this farm, the rhythms of the day, and the language spoken. Language spoken, I would emphasize as well. I, as I've said many times, Adams is just has such a good ear and such a brilliant, and what's not the same thing, such a brilliant knack for capturing uh, the sound of dialectical speech and of animal noises uh, in uh, you know phonetic form. That is not easy to do. But anyway. The chapter seems to resonate on many different levels. It left me wondering what Hazel must have been thinking after the rescue from the cat. How did he feel when he was carried around by Lucy? And how did he feel when he was put inside the drawer? And what about the ride in the Hoododoo? It does not seem as if Hazel was Tharn, as he recovers from the experience quickly, and is rather nonchalant about his most extraordinary afternoon. I found De Dea Ex Machina to be an extraordinary chapter within an extraordinary novel, and I wondered what you and other classmates thought. Um... That's uh, um, that I think is a, is a is a really neat point. It's certainly true. I mean, to me, the fascinating you know, Josh, the fascinating thing about this chapter is that complete perspective shift. Because you're right. If the narrative if the narrative followed Hazel, that chapter would be completely different, right? I mean, because you're right when you construct. Um, This is the, this one chapter in the book forcibly realigns our point of view for the first time now, having thoroughly immersed us in the Lapine perspective all the way through, seeing these things, seeing the whole world afresh, even very familiar things like clouds moving in the sky from a Lapine point of view and thinking of them as a rabbit would think of them. Now suddenly, the perspective shifts for this one chapter to it, back to a normal human perspective, to the way we're used to looking at things. And we are given Hazel, our protagonist of the story. Um, uh, you know, in the moment of his great bravery and self-sacrifice and ingenuity and heroism, um, and we are sort of invited to uh, look at him from the human perspective. Not even as Woundwort looked at him, right? The, the you know the 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 limping rabbit, um, but as the humans look at him, um, and uh, 
I mean, in in one sense, I think it does. To for you know, for me, it really emphasizes what an amazing job the rest of the book does in in bringing us into the rabbit point of view. How sort of stark is this shift in perspective? Um, but you're right, Josh, that we have to kind of supply our own narrative version, right? And with the experience that we've gotten over the course of the book, we can only imagine. Um, but we can, I think, imagine pretty powerfully what Hazel's point of view would be like to be trapped there by the cat and then suddenly picked up by a by a human, right? To be picked up um, by this girl and carried in and put it in a drawer, you know, and then uh, and, and then driven in a hoodoo. I mean, what he must have imagined was happening to him when he was carried off in the hoodoo, right? Um, and then suddenly to find himself at the foot of Watership Down, you know, released at the foot of Watership Down. Um, and again, as you say, we don't, we get almost nothing from that, right? Um, we don't have, you know, he does not come up the hill with wide eyes, you know, being like, uh, you know, I was just delivered by, you know, a messenger of Frith. Um, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's amazing. Um, Philip Lord, of course, is pointing to the intriguing similarity that, of course, Hazel and Woonwort were both rescued by humans. Um, yeah, yeah, it is this, this other kind of touchstone between the two of them. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, thinking more about the ex machina part, here's, um, uh, Tom's thoughts on this. He says, I intended to write a different email than you are about to read, as I began to, but as I began to lay things out, my mind changed. I had meant to write about how there seemed to be an inordinate number of timely and improbable external interventions that save the day when all seems lost. I saw this as a bit of a flaw. The last one, the little girl, just seemed like one deus ex machina too many. Then I noticed what might be a progressive pattern. We have the train, Machina ex Machina, the fox that kills Campion, Volpes ex Machina, the dog that kills Woundwort, Canis ex Machina, and the little girl, Puella Parva ex, ex Machina. That does seem rather a lot, but with each intervention we move closer to the human, machine, wild animal, tame animal, child. In the first, moreover, the machine, which is of course made by humans, is taken by the rabbits to be a messenger from God, and humans are of course the greatest of Elil who kill, destroy, and oppress. They gas and bulldoze Sandalford, they reduce cowslips worn to a rabbit farm, they imprison the hutch rabbits, they shoot hazel. There is paradox and irony in Hazel's being saved at the end by a human, especially since it was Fiverr's premonition of the coming destruction of Sandalford that sent Hazel and the rest on their journey. So why is Hazel saved by the compassion of the greatest of Elil? Is it because Hazel has shown compassion throughout? Towards one rabbit after another, yes, but perhaps more importantly, towards other creatures, like Kehar and the mouse? Is it also because he has shown himself willing to sacrifice himself for others? You could say his compassion rules the fate of many. To which, Tom, I would add, his own not the least. Um, yes, yes. Um, good. Now, uh, two criticisms that I would make here, Tom, first, is uh, it's not uh, like Volpe's ex machina, right? It's more like Deus ex volpem, right? I mean, it's it's uh, it's it's uh, it's not the machines. It's the, the fox is the machine, um, not the Deus. Um, but secondly, I'm not sure the progression is cool. I'm not sure the progression totally works. That is, I mean, 
The criticism that I would make of the argument there is that there's like a little bit of cherry picking going on, right? I mean, there's more that I would point to as other examples of this kind of thing. The boat, for instance, right? Um, so it doesn't exactly sort of... It's not exactly like a linear progression in that way. Um, I see it less as a, a sort of a march in one direction than like a cumulative building of these overall things. Um, but um, but I certainly agree uh, with your sort of final overall pattern there. Um, I love your final observation. I think that it seems to be non-coincidental, though what exactly we do with it, I think, is, is kind of up for grabs a little bit. But it does seem non-coincidental that in the end, Hazel is exactly saved by the same kind of compassion that he shows to others. Indeed, you could even say there's a very close parallel between him saving the mouse from the kestrel and Lucy saving him from the cat, right? Um, in both cases, you have the intervention. I mean, you think of even sort of the parallel between what Silver says about the mouse and what Lucy's dad says about Hazel, right? Um, oh, if you just save the rabbits, the place is going to be overrun with rabbits, right? You know, it's they're more trouble than they're worth. It's going to end up... Right? Both Silver and Lucy's dad say almost exactly the same thing, right? Um, so I love that. I love that observation. Um, and, I, and I don't want to just totally diss the progression. I do think it's interesting. Um, I... Uh, um, we need to think a lot more about what it means to be sort of getting close to the human and certainly a little bit more about what is so interesting about the fact that that whatever, you know, if there's a linear progression or not, nevertheless, the saving of Hazel by Lucy is certainly the capstone, right? Um, it is the culminating moment of this theme, um, whether there's a linear progression or not. Um, and so, therefore, your, your your contemplation of the role of humans as the greatest of the Elil, and yet um, playing this role, you know, the role of uh, Dea in uh, Dea Ex Machina um, there at the end. The other thing that I think that, to me, um, I cannot see the these occurrences, you know, this uh, conspiracy, as I've been calling it, it's been going through, I can't see that as a flaw in the narrative. Um, that is to say, I feel like you can enjoy it or not as a theme, you know, you can like it or not, you can think that it's handled interestingly or not interestingly, but what I can't see it is as simply a flaw, um, just a weakness. The tendency towards deus ex machina, genuine deus ex machina, um, getting yourself into a narrative bind and then just waving a magic wand to get yourself out of that narrative bind, that's a weakness. But I think that's clearly what is not happening in Watership Down. There are too many for it to be merely a coincidence. And the titling of the chapter, Dea ex machina, and really drawing that dynamic to the surface... Um, uh, certainly doesn't seem like a story that is merely accidentally falling into this. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, 
So anyway, so no, like I said, I can't see it as a flaw because a simple um, weakness in the narrative or or sort of lack of ingenuity in the plot. Um, there there are times when you know the uh, you know kinds of Deus Ex Machina things are examples of that. I can't see that here. I mean, it does seem to be quite a concerted theme over the course of the especially the second half of the book. Um, but uh, but yeah, Carita says uh, she enjoyed the story partly because it has an interesting take on the idea of providence. Carita, I agree. Again, others perhaps might find it less interesting, um, but that to me is the question: is you know how how interesting, how stimulating do you find the the treatment of providence in this story? Not the debate is for me not about whether or not providence is one of the central themes of the book. I think it pretty clearly is. Um, uh, by the time we get here. Um, okay. Oh, I would stop early, but we're almost done. Just a couple more minutes. Um, though I don't think, Mark, I'm going to be able to answer your question satisfactorily. Mark Willie asks, says that Strawberry shows Hazel the mosaic-like image of Elahrera created by a, labit, a rabbit named Laburnum, and Hazel is baffled by this sight, perhaps not even recognizing it as an image. My question is, what has happened to the rabbits of Cowslips Warren, and why are they making art? It seems much more than the acceptance of doom from the wire. It almost seems as if they have evolved into something else, something other than rabbits. Do you think this is an example of degeneration rather than evolution? Degeneration in the tradition of medieval philosophic thought, that is the idea that creatures are declining as time goes on, becoming less and less great, less and less noble. If so, it seems so strange that they would grow in size and stature, gain insight into representational art, develop the ability to laugh, and yet degenerate in courage and moral rabbit artfulness. They make an image of Elahrera while they are losing all the gifts that he had been given in the first myth story. It seems to me to be much worse than a mere deal with the devil. I agree. It is much worse than a great than a deal with the devil. Um, on the one hand, and we talked about this some at the time when we were looking at the, you know, at the second half of of book one. Um, coming back to this issue, and I'm glad you raised it again, Mark, coming back to this issue at the end of the book, um, to me, the primary thing that I think of that informs my reading of it further is the conversation between Hazel and Fiverr at the foot of the Downs, that other world, you know, that where are we really conversation that Hazel and Fiverr have, in particular, the references to Silverweed um, that Fiverr makes. Silverweed seems to sort of stand in as in a sense, almost a symbol of the Warren. It's called Cowslip's Warren. Um, but really, it's kind of more like Silverweed's Warren, right? Um, it's, um, uh, I think that Silverweed is, in a sense, more typical of uh, that Warren than Cowslip is. Um, anyway... General Woundward, we're not permitted to... The story, I think, doesn't permit us to simply dismiss General Woundward as a complete monster, right? I was talking about earlier on today about the significance of General Woundward being given not only, um, you know, a... Uh, not only is he not torn down in his ending, um, but he's given this sort of mixed legend, right? Um, well... The Warren of the Snares, I think, is treated similarly. 
Um, Mark, you make a really good case, I think. Um, though you do it kind of implicitly, you don't state it straight out, but you're sort of implying, essentially, how can all of these things be wrong, right? Um, you seem very understandably, and I think rightly resistant to the idea that cowslips worn is clearly degeneration, right? They have, they have lost the path of rabbitry, they've fallen into something sub-lapine, right? But yet, there are ways in which their actions, their culture, though abnormal, though unnatural, is not obviously hideous or evil or degenerated. Representational art doesn't seem like such a bad thing. Um, the ability to laugh. That's a great point. We didn't talk about that very much when we, when we were uh, discussing that part of the story originally. Now, Cowslip does laugh in mockery, right? Not in, uh, uh, not in companionship, so the quality of his laughter is uh, not real encouraging. But still, it doesn't sound like a bad thing, does it? Um, but again, I think like Woundwort, we can see them going in both directions. And the unnaturalness of the Warren of the Snares, um, there are elements of that unnaturalness which are good, I think. Remember that Frith sent them strange singers, right? You know, the poetry of Silverweed, or the poetry like Silverweeds, the poetry for which they have abandoned the traditional stories of Elacrera, still nevertheless has its roots in messages from Frith, right? Um, it is still these are still singers that have been sent by Frith and are in touch with the other side, as in touch with the other side as Fiverr is. Um, and as Fiverr himself says, the line between himself and Silverweed is really subtle. They almost merged together. He just flew wide. Um, two clouds coming together and that just don't quite combine. Um, anyway. Um, I know it's not a really satisfying answer, Mark, but I do think that um, uh, what we come again circling back to our initial discussion, one of the things that I think that we can take from it is that it's not enough simply to say the war of the snares is bad, and every all the ways in which it's unnatural are obviously bad. But rather, again, that distinction between means and ends, right? Doing unnatural things, undertaking practices that are unnatural to rabbits. Um, but what's the end? What's the purpose? What's the function, right? Um, take, for instance, the similarity that Hazel pointed out, right? That uh, rabbits carrying food is unnatural. Carrying food underground like that is unnatural. But they did it with the three rows lettuce back in the Sandalford Warren, right? What's the difference? The difference is the way the the carrying of food that's going on in the Warren of the Snares replaces normal rabbit activity, right? It transforms them from rabbits who must go out to Silflay and be cautious and um, you know apply the gifts of Elahuera in the interest of survival 
they change from that into creatures who don't even have to leave in order they can eat rich food while safe underground right because they're living on the handouts of men um whereas again the three of lettuce that's not the goal um you know, again, I, it, the the end that's in mind with the with the carrying of the three of us lettuce back to the Warren, um, you know, it's to honor the chief rabbit, to serve the chief rabbit, who is himself getting aged, though still not weak, um, and certainly still wise. That seems like not a, an evil, you know, if anything, that choice to do the thing which is unnatural, that is to drag Flayra back to the Threera, and not just to eat it yourself on the spot during your garden raid, seems to be, um, seems to be a, 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 a sort of a step forward. It makes you better rabbits, right? So, as we've seen in Watership Down, the doing of unnatural things is itself a good thing. Not necessarily a bad thing. Okay, final question. Is Watership Down a children's book? Nancy says, I've often seen it classified as a children's book, but it seems to me that it would take a very ambitious child to tackle the book. It's not just because of the amount of horror that's in it, although I did enjoy the recent interview with Adams about that, but it seems to be quite long, very serious, and complex. I had begun to think that it got classed with children's books mostly because it had animals as characters, though as you point out, it's very different from most stories about animals. But then I know that it began from Adams' from stories Adams told his children in the car, and you said that you read it as a child, so I guess I also wondered if you'd have something to say, interesting to say about that as someone who read it as a child yourself. Um, yes, I did read it as a child, I read the, and this was not even read to me by my parents, I actually did read this silently on my own, um, though it was given to me by my dad, um, and that was very special, because my dad doesn't read fiction. Um, is one of the very few fiction works that he's, in fact, come to think of it. I can't think of another single work of fiction my father has ever recommended to me in my life to date. Um, so there was something kind of special about it, like, Dad said this was a good book. I, so if I did struggle with I don't remember struggling with it a lot the first time, um, but I certainly had sort of the motivation to push through, um, you know, much stronger than I would have had I just picked it up off a shelf in a library. Um, but, um, uh, as far as the horror elements, I, I disagree that there are horror elements. Um, there is danger, and Woundwort is kind of terrifying, but he's not terrifying in the way that, uh, like, monsters in horror movies or, or like, Stephen King books are terrifying. Um, I've... I never, ever was scared while reading Watership Down. Uh, I've found it... I remember, as a child, loving it as a heroic adventure story. Um... Doubtless, I missed a very great deal. Apparently, um, uh, to the present day, I missed the reference to Doctor Adams, um, but um, but I um, I never found it really scary. Um, yeah, Karita was just saying the same thing; she didn't find it um, too dark or scary as a child. Um, but yeah, sure, there are lots of things that I that I, I, I you know have grown into and come to appreciate more. Um, you know, like, I kind of felt that Hazel was awesome, but I didn't exactly know why. I couldn't have exactly have explained why. I could have explained why Bigwig was awesome, um, and I always loved him more as a child. Um, 
in fact, I think that uh, Watership Down had a had a had a really profound effect on my imagination back in those days. Um, my mother probably still has that copy of the first creative writing I ever did as a child at the age of eight, right around the same time here, this same year. Um, I read The Hobbit and Watership Down in that year and was given a typewriter for Christmas. These three things all came together uh, to make me for many times, uh, for many years, want to be a writer. And the very first story I ever wrote was a story which featured animals fighting with each other in climactic battles, like Woundwort in Bigwig. Um, uh, it was a bear. A bear hero uh, was my story. Um, uh, and no, it has nothing to do with Shardick, which I didn't read until much later, uh, and, and didn't really like at all. Um, though, I'm willing to give it another shot now. I was in high school, I think. Yeah, and I was definitely in high school when I read it. But, um, anyway, I... Anyway, so, like, and, and I read it with my son. Um, he was a little bit older, maybe nine or ten, when I read it with him. Um, but, um, yeah, if I'm very unlucky, my mom still has a copy of that story. Uh, uh, if, and if, uh, if ever I need uh, a strong dose of mortification, uh, perhaps that will someday be released. Um, no, I'm not going to show it to you. I don't have it, and I don't want to know exactly where it is. Um, uh, but if, I'm, if, I, if I remember correctly, the loser in the great fight between the bear and the rival bear who is fighting against him, I think the loser ended up getting thrown off a cliff, I think. Um, uh, I think that's... Uh, um, I'm pretty sure that's what happened there in the end. Um... Anyway, uh, <laughs> enough about that. Nancy, I do think Watership Down is generally classified as a children's book because it's about animals. I mean, and this seems to me just a part of the general pathology um, which Tolkien points to so eloquently and on fairy stories. Um, the fact that anything fantastical um, and and whatever else it you know whatever genre else it may be watership down is fantasy it's fantasy in a pure sense um not fantasy in the sense that it depicts magic of course there isn't magic there might be miracle and there's providence but again there's a lot of that going around in many kinds of story um it's um it's uh uh it's in its way quite a mundane story you know compared to uh you know, most works that people would call fantasy, but it is clearly fantasy in the far purer sense of inviting us to invest in a secondary world, which is not the same as our primary world, of stepping outside our own experience. Um, and certainly the qualities of fantasy that in his essay on Tolkien's, uh, on fairy stories, Tolkien attributes to fantasy, uh, you know, those clearly are um, evidenced in, uh, um, in Watership Down. And basically anything vaguely in that genre. I mean, it seems that, uh, with only a few exceptions, almost every kind of story which is not uh, 
sort of boring natural oh, excuse me did I say that aloud I meant mundane um, naturalistic fiction um, and well, anything else is basically classified as sort of being for children because it's sort of safer um, and I will say if there is one thing for which I admire the for, for which I think J.K. Rowling accomplished in the Harry Potter novels it was to make it cool you could say, well, Tolkien already did that. No, Tolkien didn't. Um, Tolkien created a large subculture, right? Um, but, you know, 20 years ago, you still, well, in fact, indeed to this day, you're still considered a geek uh, and, uh, and in some sense somewhat countercultural if you're a major Tolkien fan. Um, but during the Harry Potter phenomenon, while the books were being released, everyone was reading them, and it was normal. Um, nobody made excuses about it. Um, and that was actually, to me, one of the most fascinating things about the Harry Potter phenomenon, and one of the things for which I give J.K. Rowling a great deal of credit. Um, yes, Thomas, many people do dismiss Harry Potter as children's literature, but they still read it. Um, and, and, and by and large, without blushing. Um, uh so anyway, uh, th that I think is um, uh, uh, um, I don't want to you know get deep into the history there, but um, so Nancy, to me that that's really that's really the only justification. It is certainly not you know if uh, it is certainly not a book which is written manifestly to appeal to children or sort of targeted towards children in the way that The Hobbit is or The Chronicles of Narnia are. I mean, the narrators, the narrators of those works or, um, or even more plainly um, uh, the, you know, the wonderful book The Marvelous Land of Snurgs um, which, ins you know, which, uh, which was uh, an inspiration of Tolkien's um, Alice in Wonderland um, uh, Winnie the Pooh all of, you know, all of these characters, all of these books have very active n um, narrative voices, which are either explicitly targeting children, that is, like, I'm thinking, of course, here of Winnie the Pooh, whose narrator is a father reading the story to his son, right, Christopher Raman. Um, uh, sometimes that's quite explicit, sometimes it's that's included in a framing mechanism, as in Alice in Wonderland, um, uh, where you get the introductory materials, which is Lewis Carroll speaking to his, you know, the, the sort of the the, uh, the little girl to whom he's dedicating it. Um, anyway, um, all these things are... Uh, uh, so to me, if you want to talk about something that is children's literature, you know, a work of literature which is, you know, explicitly directed to children, like, okay, I'm ready to call that, you know, a children's book... Calling something a children's book simply because it, you know, undertakes something which most modern adults aren't comfortable with. I'm not. I'm not really okay with that. Um, I would say, however, I mean, it's not like I think that all. You know, it's not like I'd recommend tossing Watership down to you know any seven-year-old. Um, like I said, I was particularly motivated. I don't know. Maybe I wouldn't have made it through if it hadn't been for my motivations. Um, but, um, yeah, Carita, I agree. That's a C.S. Lewis dictum, right? That, uh, um, 
good children's books ought to be suitable for adults and bad children's books are suitable for none. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly agree with that concept. Um, but, um, but no, for, I mean, again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't characterize Watership Down as a children's book, uh, in general, but I don't at all think it's inappropriate for children. Um, um, oh yeah, Karita, you, you hadn't read that? Yeah, no, I'm trying to remember how Lewis said it. Um, he said it kind of the other way around. He said, uh, any children's book which is not worth rereading as an adult was never worth reading at all. Something like that. Um, uh, I can't remember exactly where he says it. Um, uh, I can't remember which essay it comes in. But anyway. Um, on stories... Thomas, maybe, maybe on stories. It's it's one of the it's one of the works in that volume. I'm like craning my eyes over to my uh, bookshelf over here. Um, uh, anyway, well, that concludes finally our discussion of Watership Down. We're going to come back and talk about the movie next time. So, uh, your assignment, if you can steel yourself to it, is to watch the film. I've been quite. Um, open about the fact that I strongly dislike this film. Um, and I'm going to be very interested to try to figure out why I dislike this film. Um, so uh, I'll be interested to talk about that next time. If you've never seen it, well, you have an assignment between now and next week uh, to find and watch the Watership Down film. And uh, we'll talk about that adaptation um, next time. No, I never did, Yana, see the TV version. Um, I haven't seen that at all. All I've seen is the animated feature um, that was released. Um, Yana says it's very different and a lot better. Um, uh, yeah, we'll see. Brian Yoder says, I read the book, then watched the film, and felt deeply offended and couldn't really articulate why. I had almost the exact same experience, Brian. So let's, uh, let's, um, let's get back to it. Um, so anyway... Next time. Next time we'll talk about that. And I will finally let you guys go. Thank you uh, for your patience, Yana. It's time for you to start your day over there. Uh, <laughs> and I, uh, uh, I appreciate your time. I've had so much fun going through Watership Down with you guys. And uh, I look forward to our next book, which is not determined, by the way. Um, uh, there, the, uh, the election is still not complete um, for our next book so maybe by next week um, when we have our last Watership Down class I will be able to announce what uh, the subject of our next class is going to be um, so uh, I will, so more on that next time and I will see you guys next week, next Wednesday for our last class on the movie. Thanks everybody, Good night. <laughs>